I'm Q. Hi, I'm Q. Hi, I'm Q. Hi, I'm Q. Hi, I'm clinical psychologist Dr. Dave Demmer. I'm clinical psychologist Dr. Jamie Byrne. And I'm GP extraordinaire, fashion icon to the world, Tom Dixon. And welcome to the Meet Q podcast, where each episode we meet Q, a fictional member of the LGBTQIAP community who's struggling with their mental health. While the three of us sit around and have a chat about what's going on for Q and how we would support Q in therapy and medically. Thanks for joining us for our pod. We acknowledge the traditional owners of this land, we pay our respects to their elders past and present, and we extend that respect to any First Nations listeners today. Sovereignty was never ceded. Hello guys. Yeah, so excited. Oh, Fun. Yeah. It's actually lovely to be here. I really love a good chin wag. Yes. With yeah. the gals. Particularly about <laughs> therapy and psychology and mental health. Oh, look, I'm very much accused of always going into therapy mode with my That's friends, it. even uninvited. So it's <laughs> nice to be invited this now time. Now a microphone, <laughs> exactly. a little platform to do it in. Yep. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, should we get started and meet Q? Yeah, please. Why not? Hi, I'm Q. I'm a 32-year-old cis gay man and basically I've never felt good enough. Sure, on paper, it looks like I'm doing well. I have a university degree, successful career, lots of friends, and a good body. I get plenty of attention when I'm at a club or cruising the apps, but I really don't feel like I belong. Most people in my life seem to like me, but I struggle to ever really feel worthy. I'm always making comparisons to other people in my life, especially other gay men. I always see everyone else as more successful, better looking, more fit, more likable. And I've got this strong, bitchy voice in my head that beats me up constantly. It's always saying that I'm shit. I grew up in the outer suburbs in what I describe as a family with very traditional values and views of the world. I remember dad using gay slurs when I was a kid, and even though he says he's fully accepting of me being gay now, I do sometimes wonder if what he said back then still affects me. Okay, gang, what do we think is going on for Q? Oh, isn't Q just a great representation of like so many of my patients? Yeah. Absolutely. And also like me at a certain time in my life. Sure. Um, like this is something that I think so many of our community experience. And I think it's something that uh, we shouldn't feel alone in. Um, it's really important that we all kind of recognize that this is just a commonality mm. that exists. If we put a label on this, I, I guess we're talking about internalized homophobia or kind of colloquially yeah. gay shame. Yeah. 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 Like, and I think shame's a really good word here because it's not necessarily like an explicit shame. Like we may like be at that stage in our lives where we're actually really accepting of our sexuality and we are out there embracing mm. it like Q is. Mm. Like they're going to clubs, they're mm. out and about and, mm-hmm. you know, having a gay old time. Mm-hmm. Um, but they still carry this kind of remnant of the past. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, these messages from dad um, that Q received coming at this time where he's forming his identity and thinking, oh, well, coming to terms with, okay, well, I'm gay and people around me are saying that gay's bad or using it mm. in a derogatory way. Mm. How can you not start interpreting mm. this idea mm. of I'm not, I'm not good enough or I'm wrong mm. or, you know, I'm mm. bad or you mm. know, I'm not normal, uh, which is just something so unfortunately so mm. typical that I see with so many um, LGBT, particularly mm gay male clients. Mm. I wonder whether that might, you know, he's described as being really successful and hitting lots of markers. Mm -hmm. I wonder whether also that feeling that you're talking about, Dave, is actually uh, was quite a protective driver of that behaviour. That's that kind of, um, 
you know, that was meant to be a short-term survival strategy of maybe if I'm just uh, a bit more attractive, maybe if I work harder at my Mm -hmm. body, maybe if I do Mm -hmm. better at school, better at university, tick, 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 right, then maybe I'll be accepted. Yeah, and and then no one will notice that actually I'm not good enough because look at all these wonderful kind of um, contingent self-worth things that I've got going on. Look how great I am. What do you mean by contingent self-worth? Sure. So the difference between, uh, I guess, uh, kind of um, uh, kind of more solid foundational self-worth and contingent self-worth, like a definition of self-worth, if you look at someone like Brene Brown, who's probably the most um, influential researcher in this area, self-worth is around, I am enough, full stop. Contingent self-worth is, I am enough if, mm. dot, dot, dot. And it sounds like potentially Q here has really fallen into this place, like so many gay men who are trying to fight this idea of not being good enough. Um, end up in a place of I am good enough if I have the most money, I get oh. the most sex, mm. I have the best body, I am the most popular, like if, if, if. Dot, yeah. Okay. Dot. And so is that different to self-esteem? It is, yeah, and different to kind of self-confidence. So like okay. more colloquially, we probably speak about uh, this idea that self-confidence is situationally specific. Okay. So we can be confident in doing something like I'm confident driving my car. Right. Uh, And confidence is built through experience. It's built through doing. When I first got behind the wheel of my car, I wasn't that confident. And now, you know, I drive eating a cheeseburger and, you know, (laughs) my knees. and, um, uh, And confidence is kind of transferable. So I'm confident driving my car. Uh I'd get behind the wheel of your car. Mm. I'd probably feel fairly confident, a little Mm. less confident than driving my car, but still Mm. fairly confident. So it's kind of transferable between situations. Self-worth kind of underlies that. So self-worth is more kind of foundational within um, and gives rise to being able to step into situations that you might not be confident about. So if Mm. we come back to this definition of self-worth, which is I am enough, If we carry that belief around, have a strong sense of self-worth, a strong sense that we are enough, Mm. where we're able to enter situations that maybe we're not feeling confident Mm. in because even if we fail or make a mistake or we don't do well, we are kind of caught in this net of good self-worth and feeling like I'm enough. Mm. If I'm entering a situation where I don't have a strong sense of self-worth, if that's kind of, I don't have a belief that I'm enough then I'm going to be very anxious about stepping into situations where I might be seen as a failure. Right. I'm really reminded of something as you uh, talk then that if my leg is frozen solid, if I dip my toe in warm water, it's going to feel boiling hot, like it's going to feel mm. wrong. I don't know if that's medically right, Tom, well, but I just yeah. imagine it's Close not going to feel good, right? It's, <laughs> it's just going to feel so sore on my leg. Yeah. And then sometimes as well, if, you know, we dip into that vulnerability when we're kind of coming from a place of being really cut off and disconnected, right, mm-hmm. then that's going to feel painful. That's yeah. going to feel painful doing that. Mm -hmm. So we need to be really mindful with our clients. And like if I was working with Q, then I'd be saying there's going to be, you know, sometimes that it's going to hurt a little bit, right? Mm -hmm. So we need to make sure we're getting that bath at the right temperature. We've got some safe people. And I'm really happy to hear that he's feeling, he he does recognise he's got good social connections in the community. One of the parts of Q's story that I really uh, connected with was that notion of kind of where do we find ourselves feeling like we belong Um, and why do we always kind of have that kind of hypercritical voice uh, 
chiming in that is very aware of what we're doing in our lives and how it kind of relates to other people. Mm. And so the way I've always thought about this is that um, the kind of that voice is really strong in adolescence, most commonly in kind of the LGBTQIA plus population, because essentially we kind of create our identity in adolescence. And that's a normal thing that happens to every person on the planet. Um, where we create that individual identity. And then in essence, we kind of marry that with kind of separation from our family by being kind of queer or um, our sexuality differing uh, from our family unit. And so we're really hyper aware of every gay thing that we do. And society says that uh, if I cross my legs and they're really close together, that's more feminine. Or if they're further apart and I've got the man spread going on, not that Mm. anyone should ever do that on a train, (laughs) um, it means that I'm more masculine. Mm. And so if we're checking that behaviour within ourselves every day, then we are going to be super aware of what other people are thinking, what we're doing and how it all relates. Yeah, and how we're presenting ourselves. I think yeah. you're picking up on a really good point there, Tom, like this idea of kind of like psychologically we call it individuation from um, around mid-teens, away from family, more towards peers. And if at the same time we're starting to come to terms with sexuality and maybe being a little mm-hmm. bit different um, and particularly from the perspective of being able to hide that, like sexuality mm-hmm. is something that can kind of easily be hidden. Uh, it's not the colour of our skin. It's not the colour of our eyes or our hair. Mm. Like it's something we can just hide away. Um, and it sounds like that's probably what Q was doing, particularly, you know, having grown up in this kind of very traditional family with traditional views of the world and, and maybe dad saying, you know, it maybe inadvertently um, some, I guess, misinformed uh, things about what it means to be gay uh, that if we're struggling with kind of individuating from our family towards our peers and at the same time coming to terms yeah. with sexuality and being able to hide that, like there's not really a safe place for us to be able to really be authentic and, and honest. No, I think like that ability to express ourselves as well, or that safe space to express ourselves is something that really just doesn't kind of, we're not afforded as uh, gay teens, or at least like, I'm of the older generation. Um, <laughs> I'm not she, she may, she may, I'm not sure. An old lady. This is a geriatrics <laughs> podcast. <laughs> yes, no. Um, she's she's uh, beyond thirty. Um, I'll say that. Um, anyway, uh, the like there was no safe spaces um, for me to kind of play with my sexuality and sure. how that expression yeah. kind of could play out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and it's something that I kind of commonly see across kind of different generational groups, but that kind of societal impact. I'd love to say a couple of things about belonging, if that's all right. And, you know, you you use that word and uh, Steve Hayes, and I want to reference him because I don't want to steal his words outright, but he said something that's always resonated with me, that belonging is a birthright. Okay. So if we think about it as a fundamental human experience, okay, that as we come out of the womb and even beforehand, right, we are completely nurtured. We completely know at some fundamental word level that we're enough, yeah, that Mm -hmm. if we cry, we will come and be taken care of, okay, because we are fundamentally enough. It doesn't matter how hot you are. It doesn't matter how many degrees you have because you are enough. It doesn't Mm -hmm. matter how much money you have. You are enough. Simply by the function of existing. Exactly, right? And that even that function of crying, right, that's how we knew that we were going to survive. That Mm. is purely Darwinian. Mm-hmm. Yeah. right? If 100%. we cry, then we will be looked after, we will be nurtured. And what we learn is, you know, Dave, you use the word contingent, okay? Mm-hmm. 
all of a sudden through our life experiences, that sense of, will I be looked after? Will I be nurtured? We go, well, maybe not. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I believe that internalized homophobia, internalized shame, we start to learn that message really pervasively that maybe, maybe because of this fact about me, yeah, maybe because of this inherent thing that I know to be true, maybe suddenly I won't get that connection. Mm -hmm. Maybe I won't get that love and support. Mm -hmm. And when we learn that message, I think, um, with a client, I'm saying, well, we're actually trying to return to something. We're not trying to learn something new. We're actually trying to learn something, yeah, really fundamental I about love that. us. I love that yeah. perspective. You know, I, I just was thinking, like, we are pretty useless as human beings for the first 12, 13, 14 years. Like, we couldn't take care of ourselves on the Sahara. Depends I don't know what 12-year-old you right? were, but I was <laughs> very independent. <laughs> I was thinking, like, you know, a giraffe comes out. Within a couple of weeks, they're kind of gambling well, along, yeah. right? Yep. Yep. But a human being, we're useless. Oh, yeah. Like, I think, useless. No, like, little balls of flesh. One, one final thought on, you know, the idea of belonging, right, and how it relates to Q is that, and I feel like I've stolen this from somewhere, so props to whoever I heard this from, but there's a kind of a subtle aggression of self-improvement in mm. Q's story, mm-hmm. right, mm. that in his busyness to be better, um, there's a really kind of uh, internalised aggressiveness there. And I guess... What's really important to differentiate here, I think, and I I support a lot of clients in doing this, is it is okay to want to be successful. It is okay to, you know, as Q was saying, a successful career, good social network. They're all really wonderful things. It's really about where is it coming from? So I talk Mm. to my clients about this idea of two people running in the same direction towards success. One person is running towards success. The other person's actually running away from failure or feeling like they're not good enough. And, And that's fine. But when they both trip over a rock... Yeah. yeah, that yeah. kind of failure is going to come up and slap you in yeah. the butt. Yeah. Uh, whereas the person running towards success is a little bit more able to just get up, dust themselves off and keep going. And a really good way or a really good indicator around that is when you do get to a place of success, maybe you get that promotion, maybe you, you know, get some new friends, whatever it might be, that do you feel a sense of pride or do you feel a sense of relief? Because mm. yeah. if it's about a sense of relief, then you've probably been running away from some anxiety. Yep. Slash if it's not even, you know, you feel a sense of relief, there's just no finish line. Yeah. Because, yeah. well, I can't stop mm-hmm. because, you know, then, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. No, it's like, I think like obviously we're recording a podcast in our own time because, you know, we're all passionate <laughs> about the field. None of us are running away from anything. Um, no, it's, uh, it's something that like I certainly experienced. Like I've got four degrees and I'm sure some of those were kind of running away from those early anxieties. And I think it's really um, kind of important for us to kind of flag that, again, this is something that so many of us experience. And it's mm. that kind of flip by kind of, I now just embrace that I'm a big old nerd. Um, mm. And I'm actually just really passionate about some things. And, yeah. and that's the difference. It's no longer to prove myself. Okay, so we're talking a bit kind of about the idea of belonging and particularly uh, attachment as well, what you're talking about there, Tom. And I think what's really important, um, and I wonder if this has kind of happened for Q, because I know it happens for a lot of my clients, particularly those who maybe don't grow up in the more kind of maybe, shall I say, progressive inner suburbs, Mm -hmm. 
is that he might have kind of been the only gay in the village when he was growing up. And so he certainly, you know, I assume he probably didn't have uh, a very robust uh, LGBT network of people around uh-huh. him. And what can happen is we can be... Th- as adolescents, as gay adolescents in smaller towns, be thinking about, oh God, you know, I'm really looking forward to moving to a progressive city like Melbourne or Sydney or something like that. Mm. Um, And we are actually kind of viewing the LGBTQAP plus community from the outside, even though Mm. we're inherently a member of it, we're not really that connected to it socially. Mm. So we might kind of build up this idea that, oh, this is going to be really fantastic. Mm. I'm really excited, you know, and from the outside, you know, and I'm probably speaking maybe a little bit more um, specifically about the gay male community at Mm. times. We really look like brothers in arms from the outside. Mm. I mean, like we um, we are connected, we are mm. fighting the good fight, we're together. And then what can happen sometimes for people who then enter the gay community, um, it might be that they maybe don't fit their stereotype. And mm. when you're within the gay male community, sometimes it can be a little bit clicky. I mean, I don't mm. think I'm saying anything revolutionary there. Yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> you, It might be that you're too femme or you're too fat or you're too yeah. this or yeah. you're too that. And actually it can end up a really isolating experience for a lot yeah. of people. Um, I also wonder... As well, um, thinking about like early sexual experiences or early romantic experiences, there might be, uh, well, two thoughts. If they're from a smaller town, there might be less open people, okay? So I'm Mm. thinking of two things there. Um, I'm thinking about if you're with a partner who um, even if you're out, they mm-hmm. might not be out and that mm-hmm. might then exacerbate feelings and not being able to be open about these early romantic sexual relationships. And then on top of that, if you only know one other gay person and you enter into a relationship with them just because of availability, then that can be really toxic. And you yeah. can go, oh, well, this is who I must like because this is who I was with when I was 16. Yeah, yeah the only yeah. other gay in the Yeah, exactly. No, like- this, I have to be, with, I have to like this guy because that's it. Yeah, yeah and that can be really damaging to some um, of the clients I see. It's almost like we're stepping into a bit of treatment, right? Oh, yeah. 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 All right. Well, great segue. So how would we support Q? Tom, is there anything medically that you would think about here? Yes, all the drugs. No. <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh, good. There's a pill for this. No, there's okay. not. <laughs> What's that? <laughs> I'm sad to say there's no pill oh. uh, to kind of cure this, uh, which, yes. Yeah. How about That's a gra- Yeah. <laughs> It will do wonders for like it will replace Botox. Uh, no, uh, it's. Um, I think the only thing that really medically uh, is really important is validation. Um, and I think this is, is there a pill for that? Where, like, can you write me? A I do. I teach uh, GPs in training uh, in Melbourne. I teach them to try and validate and kind of access um, their patients in a non-assuming and non-judgmental way. But I think validation is that important thing where we actually just sit with someone and. And we hear what they're saying, we empathise with it, we don't necessarily try and solve it immediately, we just let them have that feeling of connection. Because in a way, connection is treatment here. Yeah. Tom, what about kind of, you said nothing medically, what about kind of therapeutic support? Well, I don't know um, if anyone has been a patient of mine, they may have heard about Beryl. Uh, so um, we can see with uh, Q here that they've got this really, well, they talk about this bitchy voice that uh, kind of chimes in every now and again and tells them they're, I don't know, too fat or not smart enough or not doing well enough at work. I can only kind of assume slash uh, um intuit uh, what's going on in the actual thought patterns but essentially that's your inner critic 
Mm-hmm. And that inner critic uh, can be stronger or quieter depending on kind of where we're at in life or what, how much stress we're going through. But the way I kind of like to give people a way of dealing with them is the way I deal with mine. Um, and so my head is a dinner table uh, and we've got lots of different kind of types of voices uh, there and one of those voices is the inner critic mm-hmm. um, and that's very distinct from my healthy adult Tom voice mm-hmm. um, and the inner critic's name is Beryl so Beryl is like Dolores Umbridge from Harry Potter uh, she wears a lovely like pink cardigan <laughs> and she chimes in every now and again and she's just like she's got a little cat saucer teapot thing um, and she says you're shit at your job Wow, she's straight to the point. Yeah. Oh, she is straight to the point. Like, she's like, oh, you didn't do a very good job there. Like, you need to do better. Like, oh, you're just like dropping the ball. What are you doing? Mm-hmm. And, but that's not really very helpful for me. Mm-hmm. It doesn't support me. It doesn't help me like actually kind of do better. Um, but essentially, uh, I then imagine Beryl. I kind of try and understand why Beryl's saying what she's saying. She actually just wants me to be good at my job. Mm-hmm. So she's trying to support but by being really bitchy. Um, and so I say, thanks, no, th- no thanks, Beryl. And I imagine her getting carried off by topless centaurs. <laughs> Lucky Beryl. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you're, you're picking up on uh, a really important point there that I think um, so many people come in when they talk about their inner critic, uh, they do talk about it as like this motivational entity. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, no, it forces me to do better. It for- th- mm-hmm. This voice forces me to, um, mm-hmm. you know, not make mistakes and I find it very encouraging. And so I talk to them about the different theories of motivation in psychology, one of them, which is, is, is punishment. You know, mm-hmm. It's kind of what we're talking about here um, in, yeah. terms of the, uh, in terms of an inner critic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yes, punishment is a motivational strategy. And yes, punishment does kind of work. But when you compare mm-hmm. it to all the other ways of motivating ourselves, positive reinforcement, mm-hmm. reward, all those types oh. of things, it actually... A, doesn't work as well. That's what the research shows. Mm. And B, has negative consequences where something like positive mm. reinforcement or rewards don't. Mm. Or even like you look at um, Kristen Neff's work out of Harvard, I think she's based out of, uh, and she's a kind of the guru on self-compassion. Mm-hmm. And so I always try and uh, switch Beryl from being that very much that stick um, and trying to beat me down and to beat more, kind of beat me along the road, I suppose, uh, mm. to get better. Um, I try and switch Beryl to being a voice of self-compassion Mm. where it might be okay you didn't do the best job there you're doing okay you know that you've got these strengths Mm. how do we lift you up again so you do a better job next time and that we know is so much more from the research um kind of long term in terms of your ability to succeed absolutely like turn as you just said turning it from the stick into the carrot Mm. Mm -hmm. So you guys are thinking about this a lot in the here and now, what we can do. I think one of my instincts um, with Q and something that I found has worked really well is to start to ask the question, where are these voices coming from, right? Mm -hmm. Again, like where are these messages of, you know, I'm not good enough, you know, I'm only good enough if, like who does that sound like, right? So I'd be wanting to get a bit of an indication of that. Um, When you say who, like who might it sound like? Well, it might sound like dad for Q, mm. right? It might sound like dad's voice. It might sound like peer voices as well, depending mm. on Q's experience in high school. I, I also wonder, though, um, I, what I'm trying to get at by looking back to understand the here and now is how does an innocent child, you know, we talked about this idea that 
a, a child wasn't born this way. How does an innocent child learn this about themselves? How does an innocent child learn that they're not good enough, that they're only good enough if? Mm-hmm. Where do these conditions start to arise? Okay. Mm. So what I would do is get a client, you know, anyone could do this at home, just starting to write down, you know, where you think these voices are coming from, what what they're saying. Like, is it I'm not good enough, you know, or I'm only good enough if, and write down those conditions. And then write down, if you were to see a child three, four, five years old, right, what do you think that they would have needed to hear? Yeah. So I'm only good enough if I look good and like look good enough. If I was to see a child tripped over in the street, I'd probably just, you know, go like, are you all right? And just want to comfort them and love them and hug them and play with them and like meet, you know, like be emotionally present. That's Mm. what, that's what we need. Mm -hmm. And something that is really powerful is to identify like 10 things that we needed to hear as a child. Right. Mm. And once you start, it's easy to find those 10 things. So you are good enough, yeah, is one that I've had to write for myself. And mm. as, as you write down those things, what would it be like to record that and then listen back to those messages mm. and to tolerate listening to those messages? Mm. And I use that word tolerate coming back to that feeling of dipping a toe in water when yeah. your toe and leg has felt really cold for a long time. So, Dave, um, you've been a bit quiet there in the corner. Um, I want to hear your dulcet tones more. Do you have any other suggestions for treatment for us? Yeah, look, I do. So, one of the main things I work with, uh, I would work with Q around, would be this idea of internal validation. So, Q spoke about this idea of people around him being able to provide him with compliments and tell him that he's good enough, uh, which is really wonderful. We need external validation and, and we're worthy of external validation. But if that is the only type of validation we're getting and we're not actually able to generate that internally, um, then it's kind of like a cup with a bit of a hole in it. Mm. And, and what happens on those days when you know maybe people aren't validating us for whatever reason, we again, haven't got that safety net around self, uh, around internal validation. Um, so thinking about, you know, as you were saying, Jamie, what did you need to hear as a child and how do you kind of relay that to yourself now? Being able to provide yourself compliments, one of like the clearest indicators in therapy that I notice that, um, that really gives away when someone's struggling with self-worth is that you pay them a compliment and it's that kind of deflection mm. um, and it makes them uncomfortable. So being able to, even when someone pays you a compliment, being able to just say thank you rather yeah. than reject it. Yeah. hundred yeah. percent. I think it's also really important for us to point out that it's not narcissistic to congratulate ourselves no. for our achievements. Not like, at all. It is okay to be mm. proud of what we've achieved or yeah. what we've done or where we've made a positive impact in someone's lives. Mm-hmm. All sorts of different moments in our day or our week where we've done some good or we have achieved something, I think we should take that moment to actually uh, congratulate ourselves. Absolutely. So so something that uh, a little task that I might start setting clients uh, very early on in therapy, like you who might be struggling with this stuff, would be some kind of gratitude practice. And it's really easy to um, display gratitude towards the world and towards other people. But as part of that, I'm going to get them to every single day be reflecting on something that they're grateful for about themselves, their personality, and really being able to, and in setting that task, what we're essentially doing is shifting them away from the negative and towards an exercise where I'm saying, you must find something that you are grateful for about yourself. And do you know what happens then? You have to start looking for it. 
Uh, I think another thing that's really important to kind of touch on here is the idea of, you know, these comparisons that Q is making to other people. Um, and, you know, I want something I hear a lot from clients is around Instagram and, you know, maybe some TikTok. I don't know how to use TikTok. I, I don't have TikTok. No, <laughs> yep. people send me TikToks and I just ignore them and I just reply, lol, as if I watch Hey. I will now um, start sending you TikToks and just expect a whole bunch of lols. I think. The thing, you know, I'm, again, I'm not saying anything revolutionary here when I say that Instagram and, and TikTok and Facebook mm. and, and social media in general is curated. It is manicured mm. to look mm. like you're out there living your best life. And do you know what? Do you know, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm guilty of it as well. I will scroll through Instagram and, and, you know, look at my friends and like photos and that type of stuff. But do you know what I'm not doing when I'm scrolling through Instagram, looking at everyone else living their best life? I'm not living my best life. Mm. I'm like elbow deep in a bucket of KFC chicken <laughs> on the couch, oh, feeling the like a slob, and yeah. I'm looking at all these people who are out there living their best lives, and that is the place right. of comparison mm. that I'm coming from. I'm sitting yeah. here on the couch all alone, and you're out here being social and looking fantastic with your filtered photos and all that kind of stuff. So it's it's not about not looking at Instagram and not having yeah. Instagram necessarily, but it's about understanding what Instagram or Facebook or whatever yeah. actually is, that it is curated. And I also think it's really important um, on the topic of like Instagram or social media where we're following people that we don't necessarily have a social connection with, mm -hmm. but we're kind of telling ourselves that potentially we're following a whole bunch of gym um, like keen beans who are kind of got six packs or 12 packs or however many um, kind of cartons of beer they're not drinking. Mm -hmm. Um, but essentially, if we're following them to try and motivate ourselves to kind of have that body or have that aesthetic, it's often, again, we're back to that stick. We're yeah. using a yeah. stick approach because we're comparing ourselves and we're saying we're not there yeah. and we're not kind of good enough to be there. Yeah. Exactly. One of the things that you were mentioning there is, you know, bucket deep in KFC, not living elbow your deep, best yeah, life. Absolutely. Elbow deep, sorry. <laughs> yeah. Yep, elbow deep in KFC. Love KFC, KFC chicken. Yeah. <laughs> Props. I if don't, you know, want to don't know. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> we'll take some twisters for the next episode. Um, okay, so you know, if we're doing that, how how can we help clients identify that meaningful life? I'm thinking about values work. How would you do that? Absolutely. So, so I have a fairly specific framework that I work through with self worth uh, in therapy with my clients, and and one of those dimensions that we always work with is this idea of values and moving towards our ideal self. So, mm. our ideal self is that us that is always living within their values. Every mm. decision that we make, every step that we take in life is in line with the person that we want to be. Mm. That person that when we get to 95 years old and we're sitting in our rocking chair on our, on our porch and we're reflecting on our life, uh, that that's the us that can be proud of everything mm. that we did. Now, that that's impossible. We can't live by our mm. values mm. every moment of every mm. day. Mm. We get pulled away from them. We have difficult emotions. We have difficult thoughts. Like, that's mm. okay. We have our actual self, which is who we actually are. But the closer that our actual self is, so the real life that we're living and our ideal self are together, the, the simple, yeah. the less psychological yeah. distress we're going to have. Yeah. There's a fantastic strategy from acceptance and commitment therapy that I won't kind of bang on here and, and please, you know, Google it if you're interested, but choice points, which is how we practically engage mm. in moving towards our values. When we notice that, you know what, I'm in a situation right now where I can move towards my values mm. or I can move away. How do I support mm. myself in making the decision to move towards my mm. values, even though that might cause me some pain, even though that might make me anxious, even mm. though that might distress me in some way. If I know that long-term that is mm. the right thing for me to do, then I want to support myself yeah. to do it. 
So I was just thinking in the context of, you know, um, Q sounds fused. You know, he sounds fused with a lot of his behaviour where, um, you know, with checking, you know, he might be engaging in mirror checking. You know, we see this all the time at the gym, right, where, like, is that preoccupation with am I looking the same way? It might be weight checking. It might be, Mm -hmm. you know, really around his physical appearance and that's one of the things that he said. I wonder whether we could help him um, diffuse from some of these thoughts. So that might be as simple as getting him to say, you know, what is that thought? What's that Beryl saying? Like put Beryl out there really loud. And a nice act strategy is try saying that thought like I'm not good enough. Try singing that to happy birthday. I'm not good enough. I'm not. Okay, now I've got to sing I'm feeling not good enough. Yes, of my own girls coming out. But, you know, <laughs> even saying that it's so hard for me to do without laughing, right? Mm. You know, so if we can do that, when then in that moment where we feel just paralysed, by that insecurity, paralysed by that critic, maybe singing that in a way that just makes us laugh because it's so stupid, maybe picturing Beryl being carried off by centaurs, that in itself might give us space because it just sounds like Q needs a break. Yeah, it just relaxes a bit, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, so, I mean, I I think that I keep coming back to this sense of belonging for um, Q that, you know, he deserves um, to feel like that sense of worthiness that is fundamentally his birthright. And mm. I can see him just scanning the environment, looking for threat, looking for danger, and that makes sense mm-hmm. what he's doing. But I just worry because I feel like that's putting a, a, a fork in the road that's stopping him from letting some of that connection in, letting some of that love in. Um, and, yeah, if you queue out there, please know that you are worthy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think to flow on from that, if he was my client and I'm, I have lots of, lots of cues as clients, yeah. um, this idea that this is old stuff, that these are like the glasses that you've developed over time through messages from dad, through experiences in life, through coming to terms with sexuality, that these are now the glasses that you see the world through. And it is possible to take those glasses off and have a different view of not just the world, but also yourself. So I guess, you know, if you're a client out there, like where would we go for resources or more support? Mm. Yeah, look, traditionally, well, of course, your GP, of course, psychologists, mental health professionals. Um, But if you're just interested in understanding this area Mm -hmm. a little bit more, you know, the the foundational and traditional book that we always go to is The Velvet Rage by Alan Downs. uh, So powerful. Every good good gay gay kid has read uh, (laughs) at some point in their life. And look, you know, it's it's applicable to a lot of people's journeys and some Mm. people might not identify with with, uh, what Alan writes about. Um, Mm. But I think just from understanding what the experience of being gay and coming to terms with that can be like. It's, mm. you know, it's a really fantastic book, but also Straight Jacket by Matthew Todd as well. Mm. It's probably a little bit more of maybe an updated mm. um, uh, from the point of, you know, generationally updated uh, text. Yeah, it's really good. Wonderful chat today, gang. Look forward to our next episode and uh, meeting our next character of Q. Yes, Thank I can't you. wait to wear something sparkly. Thank you. Talk to you next time. Meet Q is brought to you by Q Psychology, Melbourne's leading private psychology practice for the LGBTQIA community. Q is a fictional character. Any similarities to a specific person are coincidental and are due to Q representing common mental health difficulties experienced by members of the queer community. 
Any advice provided by the presenters is general in nature and should not replace specific and individualised mental health support that might be needed. If you or someone you know is struggling with their mental health, Lifeline is available 24 hours a day, seven days a week on 13 11 14. Rainbow Door is available on 1800 729 367, 10am to 5pm, seven days a week. And Q Life is available on 1800 184 527, 3pm to midnight every day. Please visit the Meet Q website at www.meetqpodcast.com for further specific LGBTQIAP mental health resources. 